The Autistica podcast covers the topics that you want to hear. Our autistic presenters bring together scientists, professionals and experts by experience to discuss autism facts, theories and personal stories. We include a broad range of views and informally chat about new or unfinished research, so don't take everything that you hear as a fact. We look forward to including you in the conversation. We're dedicating two episodes to the senses. We know that sensory differences and sensory challenges are a big part of autistic life, and we want to understand that a bit better. In this episode, Colin chats to researcher Elizabeth Verhulst about the work that she's doing looking at the link between anxiety and the senses. I did some research on the perceived causal relationship between sensory reactivity and anxiety in autistic people. And when we talk about sensory reactivity, what I mean with that is that um, often autistic people experience the world differently through their senses. So, for example, they might experience light, sound, touch things like that differently versus people who are non-autistic. And we wanted to understand if those differences, sensory differences, if they had a relationship with anxiety, for example, social anxiety when people are a bit nervous when they're in groups of of people or generalized anxiety when they worry about um, many different things in their lives, really. Um, And if that relationship between the two was causal, as in if sensory reactivity causes anxiety or if anxiety causes sensory differences um, or if they if that relationship is what we call bi-directional so they both are cause and effect of the other because we knew from earlier research that both sensory reactivity and anxiety in autism are very common however not a lot of research had been done on that causal relationship yeah and it's really interesting um and as you say, the sensory side and the anxiety is, is often reported. Um, and it's, it's nice to see the two linked. Uh, I think perhaps in the past there's been um, a, lot of, um, a lot of stereotypes around um, the sensory issues that autistic people face. Um, and that quite often people just think of us as vampires with headaches and that we avoid the light and the noise. Um, but actually, um, one of the things that was very interesting in your talk was that um, you, you found something um, much wider than that, and that actually there was a lot of diversity in the sensory experiences. Absolutely, yeah. So when we look at sensory reactivity, um, there's a lot of detail that you can that you can look at. For example, um, sensory reactivity can be um, divvied up in different types. So, for example, some people are what we call hyper reactive or overreactive to things like light, etc. Which means that if they get those sensory inputs their response might be stronger than what you'd normally expect. Um, Or they might be hypo-reactive, i.e. under-reactive, i.e. if they, for example, um, feel pain, their, their response might be less strong than what you'd normally expect. And some people do what we call sensory seeking, which means that they crave a certain um, sensory input and they will you know, go out of their way to feel things or you know, like touch things, etc. So there's actually three types of sensory reactivity. And all those three types are relevant um, for all of the sensory domains, which is um, light, um, sound, 
touch, but also balance, um, smell, taste, and all of the uh, the senses that people have. So it's not that there's one type of sensory reactivity. There's actually a lot of detail um, below that that we that we looked into. That's really interesting, um, and particularly sort of. Um going across the different kinds of sensory process. I was just thinking of myself, um, when it's really noisy outside and there's lots of traffic, um, I tend to have problems with dyspraxia, with coordination, um, but it only tends to be when there's that distraction. Um, But I didn't actually realise until recently when I was talking to um, a health professional, I thought everybody in their heads when they were out went left, right, left, right. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's actually kind of though I'm using a sort of an internal sort of... um, sort of auditory sensory thing to sort yeah. of compensate. Um, but I think the the hyperreactivity um, is the kind of the, the sensory thing that most people see. And, you know, the, you think of sort of um, people having meltdowns and or coping mm. and having to, you know, like at this conference, we've got a quiet room for people to go and have a break. Um, with the hyposensitivity, um, it just strikes me, actually, um, there's some talk um, in some of the other discussions around um, healthcare and perhaps um, not being believed or um, not realising the severity. Uh, it just strikes me as well, actually, whether um, people report in, in healthcare access that they um, have a lot of anxiety because of not being believed. And I wonder whether they think that could actually be um, that their expression of, whether it be pain or um, you know emotion, um, that might be hyposensitive and that then perhaps... Um, not reacting in the way that people mm-hmm. would expect. Yeah. Yes, I think there's a lot of um, work for us all to do about understanding and awareness of sensory reactivity um, in autism. Um, I don't think a lot of people out, outside of the community realise how different and how, how difficult these things can be for autistic people. Um, what we've seen, what, I've se- what I saw in my research is that the experience of autistic people, when we talk about both sensory reactivity and anxiety, is very, very diverse. So what is a, a problem for one autistic person may not be a problem for another at all. So someone may be hyperreactive to sound and another might be hyperreactive to touch. Um, in, so it can be any of those elements and it can be any of those combinations so it can be hyper hypo or seeking and then across all of the senses so the 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 differences in experience through senses is very very different and that makes it almost like um, a more difficult story to tell to people who are not autistic because it's not a simple story like everyone is bothered by light no Not everyone's bothered by light because they might be bothered by touch. If we look at the relationship between sensory reactivity and anxieties, um, what I did is I asked 240 autistic people what they felt the cause and effect relationship was between those two things. And what comes out of that at the top line level is that both sensory reactivity and anxiety are both cause and effect of the other. But then if you look a little bit deeper at the detail, there are actually some differences. And what I found is that hyperreactivity, so when people are very reactive to sensory input, that actually causes anxiety more than the other way around. Whereas if you look at hyporeactivity, um, that relationship is, um, is neutral. But if you look at sensory seeking, that is actually more an effect than a cause of anxiety. So 
if people are getting anxious, they will almost use that sensory seeking as a coping mechanism. For example, stimming, so um, moving, tapping, touching things, rocking, things like that. They are often used by autistic people as, um, as self-soothing coping mechanisms and they they are hypothesized to reduce the anxiety and I think that is something that um, could be a good next step for this research um, is to look at is that actually the sensory seeking increase is that actually meant to be self-soothing um, through stimming because uh, that has to be has to be confirmed. I think um, as well that when you talk about the, the you know the the causal relationship between the the um, sensory experiences and anxiety, um, and you know that going both ways. Um, I'm just speaking from personal experience. I always find um, sensory-wise, Christmas it's very busy. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of extra noise, uh, but there's also a lot of extra social demands. Yeah. So actually, the two tend to compound each other. And um, yeah. I, I have been known to disappear <laughs> sort of um, mid-December to early January. Um, I think two years ago I did actually cancel Christmas because <laughs> <laughs> I tend to cook Christmas lunch for my dad. Um, yeah. We had it in mid-January, but um, he has a very similar issues with me with things like that. So we were both actually quite glad. Um, I think one year we'll probably just save up money and, and disappear and go abroad. Um, yeah, so it, it's um, it's really interesting, you know, looking at that relationship rather than looking at them um, in isolation. Mm -hmm. um, one of the um, the other things that you mentioned about the sort of sensory seeking um, was that perhaps it was linked to stimming. And now that's something that, um, uh, stimming something that in the past people have um, perhaps felt a lot of shame, um, that, you know, that it, it's made them out to be different and they've, they've been very visible. Um, but also actually sometimes um, in the past, but actually still now, there are some... Um, some childhood interventions that might uh, view stimming negatively or, or find that it's, um, you know, in, in thinking about repetitive behaviours, that there's a difference between repetitive behaviours that can um, cause an individual distress and harm and those that are actually, they may be unusual, they may be different, they might be slightly annoying to others, but actually there is that self-regulation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I just wonder, particularly notice you were looking at adulthood, um, whether you had anything um, to say about the sort of stimming in adulthood and how that was reflected in your study? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think I think the topic of stimming is absolutely a very important one because I don't think that um, a lot of people outside of the community realise that it is a, it can be a very healthy coping mechanism. Um, when people are anxious, they do tend to use stimming to self-soothe um, and um, it can be very very positive for adults I think looking at my my study we did see that effect of um, anxiety on sensation seeking which I hypothesize is you know looking for um, feedback that is self-soothing the stimming um, so I think there definitely is something there that we could look in as a research community in a little bit more detail thank you and that's really interesting um, and especially for other researchers who are listening to to think about um, I'm also wondering, and hopefully we'll have lots of different people listening to the podcast, um, if there are people who are working with, um, with somebody who's experiencing anxiety uh, and they may be um, working in the mental health field, uh, is there anything, if there's sort of like one take-home message that you'd really like them to understand about um, some of the things you found in the interplay with sensory things? 
Yes, I think the biggest takeout for uh, practitioners and also for researchers is that the relationship between sensory reactivity and anxiety is bidirectional. So it's very important to keep those two things in mind when developing interventions, when working with people um, on the autistic spectrum. Um, and also a key point is the massive amount of diversity of the levels of sensory reactivity and anxiety that people experience in the population. There is no one answer or one picture that fits all of um, all of autistic people. It is very heterogeneous, it's very diverse. So talking to people and really understanding their individual situation and the sensory reactivity difference that they experience, the anxiety uh, differences that they experience themselves is absolutely crucial. And the kind of questions that are asked in my study about, do you think you're, for example, hyperactivity to loud sounds, um, to which extent that causes your generalized anxiety, that kind of question can be really helpful to unpick the lower level and really understand how the individual feels and responds to um, different sensory input. Yeah, I mean, that's really useful. And I think um, it's also useful um, for people in the community as well to actually just think about how they can have those um, conversations with practitioners and frame it and, and actually being able to point to a project like this and, and rather than it just being... You know, uh, you know, it's, it's more than personal preference, yeah. which should be important enough. But actually, you know, this is actually giving some concrete evidence to say, um, you know, these are the ways that it affects me, and this is how it will affect my anxiety going forward. And mm-hmm. um, I guess the other thing, when you sort of you've we've touched on a few times about um, the the huge diversity um, within the autism community, um, and it just makes me think of. Um, there's been a lot of, of really great efforts actually um, in the community to make things more autism friendly um, and a lot of cinemas and theatres are doing autism friendly performances and shops but actually they're tending to focus on the the hypersensitivity and that to be autism friendly in the theatre is to you know um, have dim lighting and have the speakers down yeah. uh, but actually and, and that's important it's serving a lot of people but but it could actually be leaving as many out mm-hmm. um, so I think you know, it has implications everywhere in that 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 knowing that um, you know some people might might want to turn up to eleven and um, and yeah. um, certainly with music, you know, um, when you when you have control and, you, and I suppose it's a predictable sensory input as well, and that you're in control of it, um, that you actually you want to experience it and take it all in and have it be all encompassing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, did you find that with the the participants? Did did they talk about um, the difference with predictable sensory input? Yes, um, as I mentioned, one of the variables that influences the, the, the relationship between the two variables that I looked at um, is um, intolerance of uncertainty. And that is a big thing in the community as well. Um, uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen, not having control over these things um, are two different difficult things, I think, for, for autistic people. So when knowing what's going to happen... Um, that's probably you know a reason why they love uh, structure and having control about the situation um those things are very important for for people to know so yes if if you know people are listening who have influence on um sensory input in the wider community in shops in cinemas and you know theaters and things like that if there's uh predictability and control about levels of input that'll be very very helpful for autistic people
Um, well, thanks very much for that. It's been really nice talking to you. My absolute pleasure and thank you for having me. If you're autistic, a family member, a researcher, or you work with autistic people, you can join the Autistica Network. The network is the UK's autism research network run by Autistica. You'll get email updates about the latest research and you'll hear about studies that you can take part in. By working together and sharing knowledge, we can make real progress for autistic people. Find out more at autistica.org.uk. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. To hear more, just subscribe and we would love it if you left us a review.